Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with The Wretched of the Earth and our chapter on the pitfalls of national consciousness. It's been discussing the ways in which, even after independence from Western colonial powers, the local national government, the local bourgeoisie, can be just as, if not in some ways more so, oppressive than their previous colonial masters. So let's continue with this chapter. Now it must be said that the masses show themselves totally incapable of appreciating the long way they have come. The peasant who goes on scratching out a living from the soil, and the unemployed man who never finds employment, do not manage. In spite of public holidays and flags, new and brightly coloured though they may be, to convince themselves that anything has really changed in their lives. The bourgeoisie who are in power vainly increase the number of processions. The masses have no illusions. They are hungry, and the police officers, though they are now Africans, do not serve to reassure them particularly. The masses begin to sulk. They turn away from this nation in which they have been given no place and begin to lose interest in it. From time to time, however, the leader makes an effort. He speaks on the radio or makes a tour of the country to pacify the people, to calm them and bemuse them. The leader is all the more necessary in that there is no party. During the period of the struggle for independence, there was one right enough, a party led by the present leader. But since then, this party has sadly disintegrated. Nothing is left but the shell of a party. The name, the emblem, and the motto. The living party, which ought to make possible the free exchange of ideas which have been elaborated according to the real needs of the mass of the people, has been transformed into a trade union of individual interests. Since the proclamation of independence, the party no longer helps the people to set out its demands, to become more aware of its needs and better able to establish its power. Today the party's mission is to deliver to the people the instructions which issue from the summit. There no longer exists the fruitful give and take from the bottom to the top and from the top to the bottom, which creates and guarantees democracy in a party. Quite on the contrary, the party has made itself into a screen between the masses and the leaders. There is no longer any party life, for the branches which were set up during the colonial period are today completely demobilized. The militant champs on his bit. Now it is that the attitude taken up by certain militants during the struggle for liberation is seen to be justified. For the fact is that in the thick of the fight, more than a few militants asked the leaders to formulate a dogma, to set out their objectives, and to draw up a program. But under the pretext of safeguarding national unity, the leaders categorically refused to attempt such a task. The only worthwhile dogma, it was repeatedly stated, is the union of the nation against colonialism. And on they went, armed with an impetuous slogan which stood for principles, while their only ideological activity took the form of a series of variants on the theme of the right of peoples to self-determination. Born on the wind of history, which would inevitably sweep away colonialism. When the militants asked whether the wind of history couldn't be a little more clearly analyzed, the leaders gave them instead hope and trust. The necessity of decolonization 
and its inevitability, and more to that effect. After independence, the party sinks into an extraordinary lethargy. The militants are only called upon when so-called popular manifestations are afoot, or international conferences, or independence celebrations. The local party leaders are given administrative posts, the party becomes an administration, and the militants disappear into the crowd and take the empty title of citizen. Now that they have fulfilled their historical mission of leading the bourgeoisie to power, they are firmly invited to retire so that the bourgeoisie may carry out its mission in peace and quiet. But we have seen that the national bourgeoisie of underdeveloped countries is incapable of carrying out any mission whatsoever. After a few years, the breakup of the party becomes obvious, and any observer, even the most superficial, can notice that the party, today the skeleton of its former self, only serves to immobilize the people. The party, which during the battle had drawn to itself the whole nation, is falling to pieces. The intellectuals who on the eve of independence rallied to the party now make it clear by their attitude that they gave their support with no other end in view than to secure their slices of the cake of independence. The party is becoming a means of private advancement. There exists inside the new regime, however, an inequality in the acquisition of wealth and in monopolization. Some have a double source of income and demonstrate that they are specialized in opportunism. Privileges multiply and corruption triumphs, while morality declines. Today the vultures are too numerous and too voracious in proportion to the lean spoils of the national wealth. The party, a true instrument of power in the hands of the bourgeoisie, reinforces the machine and ensures the people are hemmed in and immobilized. The party helps the government to hold the people down. It becomes more and more clearly anti-democratic, an implementation of coercion. The party is objectively sometimes subjectively, the accomplice of the merchant bourgeoisie. In the same way that the national bourgeoisie conjures away its phase of construction in order to throw itself into the enjoyment of its wealth. In parallel fashion, in the institutional sphere, it jumps the parliamentary phase and chooses a dictatorship of the national socialist type. We know today that this fascism at high interest, which has triumphed for half a century in Latin America, is the dialectic result of states which were semi-colonial during the period of independence. In these poor, underdeveloped countries, where the rule is that the greatest wealth is surrounded by the greatest poverty, the army and the police constitute the pillars of the regime, an army and a forgotten police force, another rule which must not be forgotten which are advised by foreign experts. The strength of the police force and the power of the army are proportionate to the stagnation in which the rest of the nation is sunk. By dint of yearly loans, concessions are snatched up by foreigners, scandals are numerous, ministers grow rich, their wives doll themselves up, the members of parliament feather their nests, and there is not a soul down to the simple policeman or the customs officer who does not join in the great procession of corruption. The opposition becomes more aggressive, and the people at once catch on to its propaganda. From now on, their hostility to the bourgeoisie is plainly visible. 
This young bourgeoisie, which appears to be afflicted with precocious senility, takes no heed of the advice showered upon it, and reveals itself incapable of understanding that it would be in its interest to draw a veil, even if only the flimsiest kind, over its exploitation. It is the most Christian newspaper, the African Weekly, published in Brazzaville, which addresses the princes of the regime thus, quote, You who are in good positions, you and your wives, today you enjoy many comforts, perhaps a good education, a fine house, good contacts, and many missions on which you are delegated, which open new horizons to you. But all your wealth forms a hard shell, which prevents your seeing the poverty that surrounds you. Take care. End quote. This warning coming from the African Weekly and addressed to the henchmen of Monsieur Hulot has, we may imagine, nothing revolutionary about it. What the African Weekly wants to point out to the starvers of the Congolese people is that God will punish their conduct. It continues, quote, If there is no room in your heart for consideration towards those who are beneath you, there will be no room for you in God's house. End quote. It is clear that the national bourgeoisie hardly worries at all about such an indictment. With its wavelengths tuned into Europe, it continues firmly and resolutely to make the most of the situation. The enormous profits which it derives from the exploitation of the people are exported to foreign countries. The young national bourgeoisie is often more suspicious of the regime that it has set up than are the foreign companies. The national bourgeoisie refuses to invest in its own country and behaves toward the state that protects and nurtures it with, it must be remarked, astonishing ingratitude. It acquires foreign securities in the European markets and goes off to spend the weekend in Paris or Hamburg. The behavior of the national bourgeoisie of certain underdeveloped countries is reminiscent of the members of a gang who, after every holdup, hide their share in the loot from the other members who are their accomplices and prudently start thinking about their retirement. Such behavior shows that, more or less consciously, the national bourgeoisie is playing to lose if the game goes on too long. They guess that the present situation will not last indefinitely, but they intend to make the most of it. Such exploitation and such contempt for the state, however, inevitably gives rise to discontent among the mass of the people. It is in these conditions that the regime becomes harsher. In the absence of a parliament, it is the army that becomes the arbiter. But sooner or later, it will realize its power and will hold over the government's head the threat of a manifesto. As we see it, the national bourgeoisie of certain underdeveloped countries has learned nothing from books. If they had looked closer at the Latin American countries, they doubtless would have recognized the dangers which threatened them. We may thus conclude that this bourgeoisie in miniature that thrusts itself into the forefront is condemned to mark time, accomplishing nothing. In underdeveloped countries, the bourgeois phase is impossibly arid. Certainly, there is a police dictatorship and a profiteering caste, but the construction of an elaborate bourgeois society seems to be condemned to failure. The ranks of decked-out profiteers whose grasping hands scrape up the banknotes from a poverty-stricken country will sooner or later be men of straw in the hands of the army, cleverly handled by foreign experts. 
In this way, the former mother country practices indirect government, both by the bourgeoisie that it upholds and also by the national army led by its experts, an army that pins the people down, immobilizing and terrorizing them. The observations that we have been able to make about the national bourgeoisie bring us to a certain conclusion which should cause no surprise. In underdeveloped countries, the bourgeoisie should not be allowed to find the conditions necessary for its existence and its growth. In other words, the combined effort of the masses, led by a party and of intellectuals who are highly conscious and armed with revolutionary principles, ought to bar the way to this useless and harmful middle class. The theoretical question for the last 50 years has been raised whenever the history of underdeveloped countries is under discussion, whether or not the bourgeois phase can be skipped, ought to be answered in the field of revolutionary action and not by logic. The bourgeois phase in underdeveloped countries can only justify itself insofar as the national bourgeoisie has sufficient economic and technical strength to build up a bourgeois society, to create the conditions necessary for the development of a large-scale proletariat, to mechanize agriculture, and finally to make possible the existence of an authentic national culture. A bourgeoisie similar to that which developed in Europe is able to elaborate an ideology and at the same time strengthen its own power. Such a bourgeoisie, dynamic, educated and secular, has fully succeeded in its undertaking of the accumulation of capital, and has given to the nation a minimum of prosperity. In underdeveloped countries, we have seen that no true bourgeoisie exists. There is only a sort of little greedy caste, avid and voracious, with the mind of a huckster, only too glad to accept the dividends that the former colonial power hands out to it. This get-rich-quick middle class shows itself incapable of great ideas or of inventiveness. It remembers what it has read in European textbooks, and imperceptibly, it becomes not even the replica of Europe, but its caricature. The struggle against the bourgeoisie of underdeveloped countries is far from being a theoretical one. It is not concerned with making out its condemnation as laid down by the judgment of history. The national bourgeoisie of underdeveloped countries must not be opposed because it threatens to slow down the total, harmonious development of the nation. It must simply be stoutly opposed because, literally, it is good for nothing. This bourgeoisie, expressing its mediocrity in its profits, its achievements, and in its thought, tries to hide this mediocrity by buildings which have prestige value at the individual level by chromium plating on big American cars, by holidays on the Riviera, and weekends in neon-lit nightclubs. The bourgeoisie, which turns its back more and more on the people as a whole, does not even succeed in extracting spectacular concessions from the West, such as investments which would be of value from the country's economy, or the setting up of certain industries. On the contrary, Assembly plants spring up and consecrate the type of neo-colonialist industrialization in which the country's economy flounders. Thus, it must not be said that the national bourgeoisie retards the country's evolution, that it makes it lose time or that it threatens to lead the nation up blind alleys. In fact, the bourgeois phase in the history of underdeveloped countries is a completely useless phase. When this caste has vanished, devoured by its own contradictions, 
it will be seen that nothing new has happened since independence was proclaimed, and that everything must be started again from scratch. The changeover will not take place at the level of the structures set up by the bourgeoisie during its reign, since that caste has done nothing more than take over unchanged the legacy of the economy, the thought, and the institutions left by the colonialists. It is all the easier to neutralize this bourgeois class in that, as we have seen, it is numerically, intellectually, and economically weak. In the colonized territories, the bourgeois caste draws its strength after independence chiefly from agreements reached with the former colonial power. The national bourgeoisie has all the more opportunity to take over from the oppressor, since it has been given time for a leisurely tete-a-tete with the ex-colonial power. But deep-rooted contradictions undermine the ranks of that bourgeoisie. It is this that gives the observer an impression of instability. But there is not as yet a homogeneity of caste. Many intellectuals, for example, condemn this regime based on the domination of the few. In underdeveloped countries, there are certain members of the elite, intellectuals, and civil servants who are sincere, who feel the necessity for a planned economy, the outlawing of profiteers, and the strict prohibition of attempts at mystification. In addition, such men fight in a certain measure for the mass participation of the people in the ordering of public affairs. In those underdeveloped countries which accede to independence, there almost always exists a small number of honest intellectuals, who have no very precise ideas about politics, but who instinctively distrust the race for positions and pensions, which is symptomatic of the early days of independence in colonized countries. The personal situation of these men, breadwinners of large families, or their background, hard struggles and a strictly moral upbringing, explains their manifest contempt for profiteers and schemers. We must know how to use these men in the decisive battle that we mean to engage upon which will lead to a healthier outlook for the nation. Closing the road to the national bourgeoisie is, certainly, the means whereby the vicissitudes of newfound independence may be avoided, and with them the decline of morals, the installing of corruption within the country, economic regression, and the immediate disaster of an anti-democratic regime drawing on force and intimidation. But it is also the only means toward progress. What holds up the taking of a decision by the profoundly democratic elements of the young nation and adds to their timidity is the apparent strength of the bourgeoisie. In newly independent, underdeveloped countries, the whole of the ruling class swarms into the towns built by colonialism. The absence of any analysis of the total population induces onlookers to think that there exists a powerful and perfectly organized bourgeoisie. In fact, we know today that the bourgeoisie in underdeveloped countries is non-existent. What creates a bourgeoisie is not the bourgeois spirit, nor its taste or manners, nor even its aspirations. The bourgeoisie is above all the direct product of precise economic conditions. Now, in the colonies, the economic conditions are conditions of a foreign bourgeoisie. Through its agents, it is the bourgeoisie of the mother country that we find present in the colonial towns. The bourgeoisie in the colonies is, before independence, a western bourgeoisie, 
a true branch of the bourgeoisie of the mother country that derives its legitimacy, its force, and its stability from the bourgeoisie of the homeland. During the period of unrest that precedes independence, certain native elements, intellectuals, and traders who live in the midst of that imported bourgeoisie try to identify themselves with it. A permanent wish for identification with the bourgeois representatives of the mother country is to be found among the native intellectuals and merchants. This native bourgeoisie, which has adopted unreservedly and with enthusiasm the ways of thinking characteristic of the mother country, which has become wonderfully detached from its own thought and has based its consciousness upon foundations which are typically foreign, will realize, with its mouth watering, that it lacks something essential to a bourgeoisie. Money. The bourgeoisie of an underdeveloped country is a bourgeoisie in spirit only. It is not its economic strength, nor the dynamism of its leaders, nor the breadth of its ideas that ensures its peculiar quality as bourgeoisie. Consequently, it remains at the beginning and for a long time afterward a bourgeoisie of the civil service. It is the positions that it holds in the new national administration which will give it strength and serenity. If the government gives it enough time and opportunity, this bourgeoisie will manage to put away enough money to stiffen its domination, but it will always reveal itself as incapable of giving birth to an authentic bourgeois society with all the economic and industrial consequences which this entails. From the beginning, the national bourgeoisie directs its efforts toward activities of the intermediary type. The basis of its strength is found in its aptitude for trade and small business enterprises and in securing commissions. It is not its money that works, but its business acumen. It does not go in for investments, and it cannot achieve that accumulation of capital necessary to the birth and blossoming of an authentic bourgeoisie. At that rate, it would take centuries to set on foot an embryonic industrial revolution, and in any case, it would find the way barred by the relentless opposition of the former mother country, which will have taken all precautions when setting up neo-colonialist trade conventions. If the government wants to bring the country out of its stagnation and set it well on the road toward development and progress, it must first and foremost nationalize the middleman's trading sector. The bourgeoisie, who wish to see both the triumph of the spirit of money-making and the enjoyment of consumer goods, and at the same time, the triumph of their contemptuous attitude toward the mass of the people and the scandalous aspect of profit-making. Should not we rather call it a robbery? In fact, invest largely in this sector. The intermediary market, which formerly was dominated by the settlers, will be invaded by the young national bourgeoisie. In a colonial economy, the intermediary sector is by far the most important. If you want to progress, you must decide in the first few hours to nationalize this sector. But it is clear that such a nationalization ought not to take on a rigidly state-controlled aspect. It is not a question of placing at the head of these services citizens who have had no political education. Every time a procedure has been adopted, it has been seen that the government has in fact contributed to the triumph of a dictatorship of civil servants who had been set in the mould of the former mother country, and who quickly showed themselves incapable of thinking in terms of the nation as a whole. 
these civil servants very soon began to sabotage the national economy and to throw its structure out of joint. Under them, corruption, prevarication, the diversion of stocks, and the black market came to stay. Nationalizing the intermediary sector means organizing wholesale and retail cooperatives on a democratic basis. It also means decentralizing these cooperatives by getting the mass of the people interested in the ordering of public affairs. You will not be able to do all this unless you give the people some political education. Previously, it was realized that this key problem should be clarified once and for all. Today, it is true that the principle of the political education of the masses is generally subscribed to in underdeveloped countries. But it does not seem that this primordial task is really taken to heart. When people stress the need to educate the people politically, they decide to point out at the same time that they want to be supported by the people in the action that they are taking. A government which declares that it wishes to educate the people politically thus expresses its desire to govern with the people and for the people. It ought not to speak a language destined to camouflage a bourgeois administration. In the capitalist countries, the bourgeois governments have long since left this infantile stage of authority behind. To put it bluntly, they govern with the help of their laws, their economic strength, and their police. Now that their power is firmly established, they no longer need to lose time in striking demagogic attitudes. They govern in their own interests, and they have the courage of their own strength. They have created legitimacy, and are strong in their own right. The bourgeois caste in newly independent countries has not yet the cynicism nor the unruffled calm which is founded on the strength of long-established bourgeoisies. From this springs the fact that it shows a certain anxiety to hide its real convictions, to sidetrack, and in short, to set itself up as a popular force. But the inclusion of the masses in politics does not consist in mobilizing three or four times a year 10,000 or 100,000 men and women. These mass meetings and spectacular gatherings are akin to the old tactics that date from before independence, whereby you exhibited your forces in order to prove to yourself and to others that you had the people behind you. The political education of the masses proposes not to treat the masses as children, but to make adults of them. And that concludes our reading for this week. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, corrections, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other podcasts about books, video games, movies, anime, That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.